I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Right. Today on the show, we are announcing, in fact, we're not announcing it today. The announcement's actually going to be, I think, on Friday. But Hot Flush is a label that I started in 2003, which means it's 20 years old. And that's a big deal. Basically, there's no two ways about it. I did absolutely nothing for the 10th anniversary. I don't really know why. I just didn't feel like I wanted to. But I figured for 20, might as well actually make a thing out of this. 20 years is a long time to be doing something. And I'm definitely going to be keeping doing it. So this is not a 20 and done or anything like that. But we are going to be doing a fair bit of stuff this year to just draw a bit of attention to what we've been doing as a group of people over 20 years. There's been various different people contribute to it. I've been the only constant from day one to now, but there are and have been different people involved. And we've released a hell of a lot of music, lots of different styles, many, many, many different tracks, bunch of albums, loads of singles. And we're going to be keeping on doing it, keeping on developing the sound. That's been a hallmark of the label since day one, is that it hasn't been one thing. So, yeah, I'm not announcing this now, though. So the full announcement will be later this week. But, but, this week's guest is absolutely on message with the announcement of a 20 years of hot flush thing because he was the first ever external artist, that is, artist not being me, the first ever external artist to release on the label back in 2004. January 2004 was Distance and his two tracks, Nomad and Third Wish, that was HF002, the very second release 
after my first release, which wasn't as Scuba. It was as Spectre, which is a name that I've used occasionally since. It was well before Scuba. The first Scuba release was in 2005. As a DJ back in those days, I was actually DJing under my real name, Paul Rose. So when I joined Rinse FM in 2003, it was DJ Paul Rose, believe it or not. But Distance was there from day dot, basically, with the label. And in those days, we were part of the early dubstep scene. It wasn't really called the dubstep scene back then. But that's basically what the label was for the first few years. We were one of the very, very few people pushing the sort of dark side of Garage, which became known as dubstep and blew up in a big way in 2006 and became a global phenomenon. And you probably know the rest of the history and you've certainly heard us talking about it on this show if you're a regular listener. So there's going to be stories told in this episode, which you've heard before, but you'll be hearing them from a slightly different perspective. Distance went on to sign to Planet Mew. That's a label that we've also talked about on the show a fair bit. And he made some of the absolute classics of the genre, basically. Tracks like V, Menace, he remixed Mala's Changes track, memorably. Two great albums on Planet Mew and another album in 2016 on Tectonic. So he's done all kinds of stuff. Actually, the thing that I've just forgotten to mention and is really significant is that he was part of Marianne Hobbs' Dubstep Wars show in January 2006, which was arguably the most important moment in the history of dubstep. So Distance was on that show, along with Lofa, Vexed, Mala, Scream, Code 9, I think, I think that's it. Might have been one more. But yeah, that was just a hugely significant moment. And we talk about that in detail in this week's conversation. And it's a great conversation. Greg, which is his name, and I go back obviously a long way. We, in fact, became friends as a result of meeting online, swapping music. I remember working my day job and doing that thing when you've got a boring day job and you email your mates constantly. I remember going back and forth on emails with him back in 2002, 2003. And yeah, he's had a really quite a great career, really influential producer who's made some amazing music. And it's great to have him on the show, in particular with the aforementioned anniversary of Hot Flush Recordings. So before we get into it, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash official. You can also buy a Musicality t-shirt to support the show. You can do that at hotflush.bandcamp.com. Hit the merch button on there. So that's two ways you can support what we're doing here. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that. And almost as importantly, in fact, just as importantly, if you're not going to support us directly with financial means, then you can leave us a review or a rating on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. That really does help. So please do that. Finally, you can join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord if you want to say anything at all about the show, positive or negative, keep it constructive, but there's a really great community of people there. If you are a Patreon subscriber, there is a private area in there where the cool people hang out, so to speak. Mm, maybe, to an extent anyway. But yeah, it's a lot of fun in there. So join us, hotflushcorners.com slash discord. I'm going to stop prattling on. 
without further delay, here is Distance. DJ Distance, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm not too bad, mate. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm going to call you Greg for the purposes of this, and please call me Paul. <laughs> that's uh, Yep, please do, that's fine. <laughs> I think that's a better idea. So, all right, um, we have lots of ground to cover here. I just want, I've got a question to, to start off, though, which is unrelated to anything else I think we're going to talk about. But on your Instagram, well, from your Instagram account, it seems that you're quite a skilled barista do your coffee posts get better engagement than your music posts <laughs> um i don't even know <clears throat> i don't really keep i mean I, th- I think when i first started doing it which was i don't even know it could be i don't know maybe six years ago or something maybe longer um they used to back then but i don't know if they do now but w- one of the really strange things was that w- i remember one morning waking up and um literally my whole you know when you get the um notifications on instagram you know when you get a little like or something and basically there was something like i don't know 200 um tags and likes or something so i had a look and basically someone someone had made has made an account called um coffee by distance and it is basically someone has screen grabbed every coffee i've ever taken a photo of and made an account of it but they've like done crazy comments like oh you know man's got the ping flick on this one you know what i mean like they've commented it like uh like an like an mc he's like it's crazy so uh i mean it's a battle for attention isn't it online i mean you are genuinely good at it though i mean the posts are good posts so i mean fair play i mean i don't know i don't know if i was really doing it for people to go wow you're you're so good at it or whether i was just trying to see if i was any good at it. I, I don't really know who knows so, you know what it's like you start <laughs> you post things up and you're like why did it was there a reason for this or am i just bored and posting up stuff you know so i mean it's always nice to get get validation for that kind of thing so <laughs> anyway let's not talk about coffee i was trying to figure out how to do this and i think we better just start at the beginning so i will have said in the intro a brief like history of your involvement with with hot flush in particular because you were the first external person as it were to release on a label but i mean i can't remember how we first met do you remember how we first met um i think it was either at forward or it may have been at because I think me and you both joined Rinse FM at the same time, so it may well have been at one of their little meetings that are in the middle of nowhere. It could have well been something like that. So I think it was either that. I think it was either forward or um, yeah, or at like a Rinse early Rinse meeting, or maybe even at a club, at another club. Do you know what I mean? Another night because um, there was a few things kind of popping off. I'm fairly sure we would have known each other from online, yeah. and then. Because I'm trying to piece together like how it all worked in like we're talking like 2002, 2003 sort of time, and the environment was was quite a lot different then in terms of how people interacted. But in some ways, it was anyway, in the sense that it was forums and message boards rather than social media. But I suppose it's it's the same sort of thing, really. So I'm trying to get a sense of where we both were in 2003 so we released your first record in early 2004 but you'd already done a couple of white labels before that hadn't you so why don't you just give us an idea of how you 
got to the point where you wanted to put out a white label of this weird kind of pseudo garage music which became dubstep yeah i think so basically i didn't really have any big goals like i you know i don't think forward hadn't long been going on so i was going there but kind of like my main way to check out music that was coming you know in this crazy i don't know side angle of garage and whatever it was was either listening to DJ EZ on Kiss 100 and, you know, and, and Rinse FM. But, um, and a friend of mine called Phil, who used to go to Black Market and just pick me up some records ago, you've got to check this out. But but basically, I think I've become quite a big fan of, you know, people like DJ Zinc and Norris J and was listening to DJ use it a lot. Now he would kind of play stuff by zinc and these people first. So I was like, right, this is the guy I'm listening to. And then, um, going to forward and then realizing, okay, people are bringing their own music here and then it's getting played on this crazy sound system. That does, that seems like quite a nice idea. And then, um, the guy I was living with, uh, this, this same friend of mine called Phil, he had bought Cubase and was mucking around with Cubase. And then I thought, okay, you know, maybe I should, I'm going to have a go at this as well. So, my only goal really was like, I really wanted to build a tune and I wanted it to get played by DJ EZ. That was basically my goal. And um, so I, I built this, first, the first tune I think I ever made that I would happily say, right, this is my first completed tune was a track I don't think anyone's even really heard, but it was called Terminus, right? And that still is, it hasn't surfaced. And I, oh wow, yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. No, and then I okay. and I actually went and got that cut to dub. So that was the first dub plate I ever cut at transition, and um, I had no idea what I was doing, where I was going, and what even really how dub plates were cut. I just thought, well, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I've heard the word transition. I'm going there. So we got this tune cut, <clears throat> and straight away it was like, yeah, you need to think about this and this frequency. And then I was just like, huh? So like, sorry, what, what were we talking about frequencies? You know, I, I had no idea. I was just wanted to just make a tune and hopefully someone would play it so anyway I did that cut this tune and then you know Jason gave me a few pointers and then I decided to go back and then cut it I think I cut the first one I cut was on a 12 inch which was crazy expensive for that time so I then went and recut it as a uh, 10 and then by then I think I had two more tunes that I thought these are more kind of complete and playable like this first tune I mean, i'm sure you, you can remember making your first tunes it's like they're not always that playable it's just you're just throwing ideas you know down and just hoping that yeah, someone yeah, yeah. someone says oh yeah that's a track so um yeah i made these two tunes the first one i made it was called trust my logic and i somehow managed to get a phone number um for ez it was i don't know how i don't know if it was something to do with like a I don't even know. I think it was on his website. He used to have a website. I think there was a number you could call, which was probably if you wanted to book him or, I don't know, contact him somehow. And I, so I called this number and this person answered and they're like, hello. And I was like, hi. And then I, and then um, they're like, yeah, can I help you? And I said, yeah, yeah, you know, I'd like to send some music to EZ. And then he started talking to me and I was like, are you EZ? And he went, uh, <laughs> yes, like that. So I was like, yeah. So basically I'd somehow managed to catch DJ EZ on the phone. 
And um, so I said, look, I've, I've built a track. I'd really, how do I get you a tune? He said, cut it to dub plate and leave it at the desk at Kiss 100. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I was just, I was going to jump in and say that that was the method, wasn't it? Back in those days when he was on Kiss, you had to, yeah. out of your own pocket, pay, I don't know what it was, 35 quid or whatever, to get your tune cut, yeah, yeah. take it down to the Kiss FM studio and leave it in the lobby for him or <laughs> whatever. Like, which is mind-blowing thinking about it now, isn't it? Yeah, because he could have just... It could have just not got to him or he could have taken one listen and just thought well this is crap and just chucked it in the bin and you're like well that's my 30 quid gone which he probably did most of the time right yeah <laughs> so um so anyway i did this just thought well you know why not you know there's a chance and then um i think literally like the following week um he played it on kiss 100 and i was just like i can't believe it and i was like oh my god I, well I, I better write some more tunes then i can't just have one tune um, so I finished another one, which was called Horizon, and then he played that one too. And he was kind of starting to shout me out a little bit on Kiss then when he was playing the tunes. And I think then he was he had MCs like B Live and um, some other MCs, you know. So I was kind of thinking, oh, this is cool. Like these people were hearing my name a little bit. And then um, I somehow got it to like Rossi B and Luca and Slimzy, and they were starting to play this the same track. Trust my logic. So I thought, okay. And then back then I thought, well, how do I go about? putting these on white label you know i'm buying white labels there must be a way of doing this and then i think i, I can't remember the company but i found a company that basically did 500 white labels for 500 quid and there was no like tps involved it was like you, you just put your money down and hope you get a record that you can play um and then yeah. and, and then and then that was it basically that so that was the first thing i ever got pressed to vinyl and then i think probably whilst that was all being mastered, I was still just like crazy, you know, I was still going to forward and like crazy, just trying to make as much tunes and learn as much as I could. And then not long after I made Nomad. And then um, I think Youngster played that at forward. And that was the first time anything of mine got played at forward, which was crazy back then. And then I think, I don't think long after that, I think you heard it and then you asked for it for Hot Flush. So I was just like, yeah, yeah. So sure, why not? <laughs> okay, so let's step back a little bit and put this in a little bit of context. So mm. you mentioned Zinc and obviously EZ and the sort of backdrop of that is breakbeat, quote-unquote breakbeat garage, basically, which I think opened up garage to quite a lot of people who were previously, yeah. you know, it wasn't quite there for them. Like aesthetically, garage had been, you know, it had been like champagne and shoes and all that kind of stuff. And I think that 138 Trek track by Zinc kind of opened the door to quite a lot of other things, including like the proto grime stuff, which I, I can't actually, I'm, I'm fairly sure 138 Trek came out way, I can't, I'd have to look this up and I should have done before the show, but stuff like Pulse X, I'm fairly sure came after 138 Trek. It did, yeah, because I remember, because I remember moving to Bromley with guys from my, you know, when we finished uni, we moved to, to Bromley and there was a record shop in Bromley and I remember us getting, uh, or, or did my friend I lived with, I remember him buying that and he was like, oh, this tune's crazy, you know, And but, but already before then, yeah, we had like all the Zinc stuff, you know, like, uh, was it Dis Distraction and uh, Trek 138? So yeah, I think it was a good few years after that. But yeah, I mean, the grime, that grime stuff as well was, was crazy back then because it was just so... I don't know, it's like anything goes. What's mad about that stuff now? Like when I listened to Pulse X, because I mean, it was like famously, you know, they were all using like PlayStations or whatever. But like just the, 
Like that's that's not coming straight out of a PlayStation. Like the, the saturation on Pulse X is is mad. Like it sounds amazing still. Like because it's just been rammed through someone's desk like way too hard, and it just sounds sick as a result. And I, I, I mean, exactly the same as you. I was completely clueless in terms of engineering back then, and was just like messing around with like a sampler and stuff, and had no idea how you might come. across cross those kind of track like those kind of sounds you know what i mean okay yeah so but but just to go back to like the development of like the genre so like forward started in 2001 and we've talked about this on the show before but just to sort of recap it like it was it started as a garage night but it was very much kind of left field garage quote-unquote left field garage so like the uh breakbeat garage thing was a big big part of it so people like zed bias as well as zinc and uh, various other people. I think Jada Flex was one of the first residents as well, wasn't he? And yeah, like L- LB. LB, yeah. wasn't it? LB and yeah. <clears throat> and it was very much the kind of sound that you could get on board with if you were more into, I suppose, like darker, harder music, basically. And at, and at this point, this was like the peak of like commercial UK garage. So there was like tons of tunes in the charts and all that kind of stuff. And I think for a lot of people, it had become a little bit too commercial in some respects and in some areas yeah it was very very showy when it was very like look at me look how much money i've got i've got a bottle of champagne i mean and then you know obviously me coming from the rock heavy metal world that just wasn't in my mindset at all i was just there for the the music and i think that's what really appealed to me about what was you know this kind of um you know this this crazy offshoot of garage attracted me because it was just like well this isn't the same this doesn't belong you know it worked in the club where you was hearing like flowers and you know chocolate boy and stuff like that but it was quite obviously different I remember the first time hearing uh you know a Wookiee's remix of Sire's Little Man and I was just like you know I was like what is this I was like this this is different like this isn't the same thing <laughs> this is something else you know it's like got a darker undertone so I think all those things kind of helped you know, I think all these little shifts kind of resulted in, you know, what we were doing, I think, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. But you just mentioned rock and heavy metal. So just put that into a bit of context as in terms of your references coming into this, because I seem to remember you referencing a corn gig or something where the drummer had a sub. Is that my right about that? Tell, tell me that story. So, um, I mean, I was very much, I mean, my electronic you know, taste was very uh, slim. Like I basically, I knew Prodigy, um, Aphex Twin, and even then I wouldn't say I was like a massive fan of it. And even even like Chemical Brothers and Square, I think there's like one tune by Square Pusher. Like, but, but, you know, nearly everything I listened to was metal. And then slowly there were just like little inserts of electronic music that caught, that caught my ear. But um, it wasn't till... Yeah, Corn kind of came around. I think it was their first show in London and I went and saw them. And the drummer, and, and also because we wouldn't have had speakers or sound systems at home probably that went down that low, <clears throat> he had like a MIDI um, trigger. And, um, you know, the, the famous Corn tune that, um, oh, Blind, you know, it goes like... Da-dun, but basically in the intro it goes and then he hears this and basically there's just this sub sound so i never knew that was there and i saw them live you heard him go like and then there's just this basically the whole venue just like shook and i was like what the hell is that 
and then and then as they were going on and doing more of their set you realize that this thing was being used in a lot of it and i was just like that's crazy so then not long after that i thought right i want to find myself a drum machine so i found myself the worst drum machine ever but i managed to make an 808 on it and then that kind of started the cross between me playing guitar and then tinkering with like drum machines and stuff but yeah that's that kind of really opened my eyes to electronic music in a way as in me trying to make something i suppose yeah okay so what what year was that then that corn show roughly that would have been oh man could have been 1995 right so it's a, a fair while before then so you were playing you yeah. were playing guitar yeah. and stuff and and all that in in your uh, yeah teenage years yeah yeah that's basically all i did with my spare from the age of 11 basically that was it i used to come home from school play guitar I even got to a point when I started secondary school or I was in secondary school, I was taking my guitar into school and then playing it at lunchtimes in the music room and then come home, play guitar. So that was it. It was just like, it was, it's always kind of been, music was the um, free time. You know, that was my, that was what I did. While everyone was playing football and doing everything else, I was just basically playing guitar. So did you, okay, let, let me think about how to frame this. Did you, have a like a good sense that it was something that you wanted to do like professionally from that early on or was it just a case of just like just being really into it and just being you know just blindly just like pursuing something that you you loved it no I think I think there's a bit of both I think I loved the idea of it being something I did but I never I don't know if I ever I don't know I don't know if I ever truly believed it or I had a game plan I mean you know I was in lots of bands but you know, bands are so fickle and last a week and then you're in another band and then a drummer gets pissed off and then you're in another band, you know. So that's kind of how that journey went. So, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say, but I, it sounds really crazy, but I think there was something, and this does sound a bit crazy, but I think there was something in me very early on that thought that this is going to happen. Like I'm going to be someone that I, I didn't know in what form would be able to just, I'm going to be out there playing music and I, I don't know how, but there was just something in my brain that just thought, yeah, this is, this is what's going to happen. Like, I'm just going to be someone that's touring. I don't know why. It's probably just me being crazy. Yeah. I, I mean, to be honest, that rings a bell with me too, actually. I've not, I never really quite thought about it like that, but I mean, I definitely, it seemed plausible to me, like in a way that I think for a lot of people, it like, it just seems like ridiculous and why would you ever you know you might enjoy doing it but why would you ever think that there'd be a chance of you doing it to that you know to that level but I definitely had that same sort of thing where it just sort of felt like almost an inevitability like yeah not that it wouldn't require a lot of work to get there but I probably would get there eventually you know I just had I don't know yeah anyway so corn gig 95 ish the EZ plays in 2003, I guess, that would have been? Yeah, it could have been, it, it might have been 2002, actually, yeah. Yeah, okay, and, and so Forward was in, started in 2001. So, the okay, so the period that I want to sort of pick apart really most closely here, or certainly let's spend some time on this, is the, the period before everything went mad in 2006, where it was, you know, a bit of a slog, to put it mildly. <laughs> Getting, well, just maintaining the whole thing 
as a going concern, I suppose, because Forward was monthly. I think it was the first Thursday of the month or something, wasn't it? And yeah. it was not busy. I think it's fair to say no. between 2003 and 2000, and, you know, the end of 2005, it was definitely yeah. a niche night yeah. to be going to. So, give me some of your memories from that period. Like, I mean, maybe going chronologically, because I mean, there was definitely ups and downs to it. But I think there was a turning point, I think, when they started bringing the MCs down. I think before that, it was still very, very much a kind of heads down, like super dubby, super dark, not very many people. That's my recollection of it anyway. Is that tally with yours? Yeah. And I think there was there was probably a little bit of sh- of a shift when the, the rinse um, guys kind of started to take a little bit of note of it you know and that's probably when the MCs started coming down I think well you know because there was I think there was a time wasn't there I can't remember who it was but there was there was a, a moment where basically they took you me was it like um you know Casper Quiet Storm and a few other people all at once we might have even been plas- uh, plastic plastician at the time was it and then yeah and, th- and they put us all on the station yeah. yeah I think but that was like that was quite early like that was that was like 2003 yeah, ish and there was definitely a like a, there was a yeah. good year or two or at least 18 months two years yeah. after that where you know it was far from clear that this thing was going anywhere <laughs> that's my recollection of it anyway yeah 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 totally totally but I think definitely Rince taking a bit of a punt on on having us on there, kind of then, you know, like obviously we were getting a bit, probably a bit more exposed to those MCs and, you know, just bumping into other people. But um, I'm not sure what the big shift was, but you're right. But I mean, yeah, I remember going there and, and for me, it was just about, it was almost like a hangout, wasn't it? It wasn't like you were necessarily there raving. It's like you were there swapping tunes um yeah i usually just stand at the bar and most then, of the and, time and, <laughs> you know? yeah and, and then and then you know there'd be the odd time when you are just down in you know by the decks um if there's someone you really really want to check or it'll be that you're at the bar you know and you hear a tune and you're like what the fuck is this tune and then you're running down there to like peek at the dub plate to see what's written on it so yeah i mean just for it was just, just a really for the, crazy uh, time wasn't it it you know? was just for the benefit of anyone who's never went to plastic people like the distance between the bar and the dance floor was literally about 15 feet <laughs> so so it wasn't like yeah. you're running down a flight yeah. of stairs it's like literally i was like oh that sounds good like walk a few paces to the you know the bit of the the club where you know you're supposed to be dancing but i mean i mean it was an yeah. amazing venue like the sound yeah. system was way too big for the space basically in a really yeah. good way and that music was just uh, certainly the early music was just designed purely to be heard on that system basically wasn't it yeah totally i think i think that was the biggest wake up call for me and i think it was just a hard lesson was that we were making all this music almost like you said specifically for this sound system and then the heartbreaking thing was was that the reality was nearly hardly any other venue in London <laughs> had a sound system like that so when we played our tunes we were like well this sounds shit <laughs> like where's half my tunes gone missing you know you're like basically I've put no real effort into like any other frequency except for maybe a little bit of top end and everything below like you know, a hundred hertz. So like yeah. now yeah. I'm in a club where nothing really goes below a hundred hertz. It's like my tune's missing. And I think that's why 
people online in the early days especially didn't didn't get it because they were probably listening to it on like laptop speakers or their hi-fi and be like well i'm basically just listening to drums like you, they couldn't hear any um melody that was being played by the sub could they so it was i think it was a bit it confused people a little bit in the beginning because we weren't paying attention you know like i said we, we didn't know what we were doing did we we were just trying to make something really ridiculously bassy and a yeah. little splash of percussion on top <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, a little bit of your bongo here and there. No, but it's what what I wanted to talk about actually the the kind of online aspect of it because it's really interesting that you say that because you're absolutely right that you know most of that music isn't going to come through on particularly in those days like you know, your average person didn't have a sub at home probably uh, and therefore listening listening to that kind of stuff over some dodgy you know internet stream would not have made a whole lot of sense but actually a feature of the way the scene grew like was online so you know going from like dubplate.net which is probably where me and you first interacted probably yeah going in going from that site which we've talked about on the show before which was run by the ammunition labels who are also running the forward night um going from that into dubstepforum.com and then I was just as I was just trying to figure out my notes for this remembered bear files and and these kinds of uh kind of resources which enabled people like small pockets of people in you know unlikely places around the world to pick up on this stuff in a way which they wouldn't have been able to well for example I mean the obvious comparison is with the early jungle scene which had none of that because obviously internet coverage wasn't you know anywhere like it was uh, in the early 2000s compared to the early 90s so I mean there was a big well not, well not a big there was a significant online international audience really early on which I thought was a was a significant feature of it yeah totally yeah because I mean you had you know you had Joe Nice didn't you who was kind of like you know and then you're like oh where are you from and he's like oh I'm from like Baltimore you know and you're like oh that's that's crazy and and then, and <laughs> yeah, then you right. had exactly. yeah but it was like but I think the thing was though these people it wasn't like they just kind of heard of it and were just kind of like yeah hi I'm this you know it's like they were like insanely passionate about it weren't they do, do, do you see what I mean like even though they're all this this far mm. away it wasn't kind of like a flitting kind of like oh this is okay you know they were like you know I remember Joe Nice and like he'd have like massive you know like he was like what's your address and I gave him my address and I remember him selling me I think I did a radio show where I mentioned something about Prince or I don't know what I'd done I said something (laughs) about Prince and he's like I'm going to send you all these CDs like I've got all these CDs of like live recordings of Prince I'm going to send you all these you know it's just like this is crazy like some random guy from Baltimore who's never met me and just happens to like this weird bassy music that we don't know what it is yet is like willing to just like chat to me for ages and, and send me loads of CDs from america of prince yeah <laughs> you know it's just, it's just crazy how it brought people together but yeah be, be all right but if it wasn't for the internet you know being at the stage it was at none, none of that stuff would have really um taken place so it really inspires like passionate responses i mean this has been you know, I've, you know, I've, I've had joe on the show and also also had dave q uh you know from new york who run the dub war night and they said 
very similar things. Like that's people's definitely people's uh, like that's how they remember that period. You know, like just real, just unbelievable enthusiasm for this stuff. Um, but so, but when you think about it, you look at it in sort of global terms. It was like a, a really small number of people dotted around like corners of the globe, seemingly. Um, and I, I, I struggled to explain it really because without that, because as we've just been saying, the music was de- designed to be heard on one specific sound system, and yet loads of the people who who became passionate about it. Never got to go to forward, right? So it's it was a yeah. It's very strange. It's almost like they were feeding off of um, what was being written because because that's the thing is that you'd have a forward and then the very next morning you'd go on dubplate.net and everyone would just be going about how crazy the night was and how amazing it was and oh did you hear that tune or oh, what about this new tune you know and who made that tune that so and so played towards the end of his set that got wheeled up you know and then maybe people on the other side of the you know world reading all these comments maybe that was kind of like a little um, insight into how crazy, I don't know, just how special it, it, it was to be in that place that they, I don't know, maybe felt like they were kind of on that journey as well, you know? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, a lot of people in that position were ordering records from from Black Market or from Big Apple or whatever and had decks at home and so were, you know, taking the trouble to, to listen to the music properly, I imagine, I mean, that's certainly, I mean, I know from speaking to Joe that that's, that was like a big thing for him and, and for the people that he was, the small number of people that were, you know, into it in their sort of community, like that was, I think people did. But yeah, it's, I mean, it is, it is kind of crazy that it inspired that much, um, yeah, those kinds of emotions, right? Because I mean, I, like, as you were saying that, I, I just remembered, you know, the, the kind of the couple of like really key memories from forward the uh, the really early part of forward that, that stick out to me was um uh when i think it was hatcher played uh, indian dub by loafer and wheeled it up oh, right, yeah. literally like about eight times but every time played the full <laughs> intro like the intro is like a minute and a half long yeah, so yeah, it would be yeah, like yeah, literally yeah. half of his set is him playing the <clears throat> intro to Indian dub and then it drops and wheeling it yeah. up after five five seconds and and it being like you know after the fourth time it's like all right all right come on mate it's just like just yeah. it's been this crazy thing but there were yeah, so yeah. many of those things i don't know i mean have you got any specific were, yeah. give me give me you must have a couple of ones like that that you remember so i think one of the ones so i think like you said in the real early days it was kind of you were getting a, a it was it was a mishmash wasn't it you was getting like this this kind of breaky side of it you was getting a grime you was getting maybe even the odd you know still like the lb and Z bias um, like landslide stuff. would play wouldn't he yeah yeah landslide yeah and then um but i never forget i think it was when mark one was just coming around as well and I think he someone played I think it was probably Oris J and and he played this one tune and it was um turned out to be Rain Dance by Mark One and it had like a really crazy you know um sample at the beginning um like an east you know an eastern style one and it just I was just like what the hell is this tune and um it had like a mad break drum pattern to it and that really stuck out to me so I was like you know it was something my head just went like that's it now I was like this is just something completely di- like this doesn't attach now to anything like this is just something completely crazy and then I think another time after that was probably 
yeah some of some of the mystic stuff definitely and then um and i think hearing horror show i think the horror show the first time i heard that was at forward and i think everyone just kind of looked at each other and it was just like what like what what is this do you know what i mean it was just like so minimal and so like solid with that sub and then um i think another real moment was um uh but not a forward but a dmz when um I think the first time Haunted got played, which I think was at one of the birthday, the DMZ oh, birthday. Oh yeah, no, I remember hearing. Yeah, I remember hearing that at uh, forward. Yeah, yeah, and that, and I think everyone it was it was just so crazy yeah. like the atmosphere and the feeling. I think everyone was just like honestly, like what the hell is going on? Like everyone's just like we're all because Haunted was basically the first wobble tune, right? Yeah, pretty much like the proper kind of yeah, I'd say yeah, yeah. I remember that clearly at forward and just yeah, endless rewinds and just being like yeah what and actually to be honest like what you've just said there like the, that feeling that fuck this is something this is a completely different direction that yeah. that would happen quite regularly like you'd hear a tune yeah. at forward and yeah. be like fuck this is totally different and i think that's what yeah. that's what made it so exciting that you just didn't know what was going to come next no but i think but i think in a way subconsciously it was kind of saying saying to me, well, then you can do whatever you want. Do you know what I mean? There is no, mm. there's no pattern to this. Like, it doesn't matter if it's got a break in it. doesn't matter if it's got a, a flute in it. <laughs> it doesn't matter <laughs> if it's just got an 808 in it. You know, it's just, it just kind of felt so free and open. There was no super structure then, you know, whereas, you know, as, it, as the years went on, it was, you know, you had a certain amount of bars for a drop and all that kind of stuff um but yeah i think it was just i don't know i think there was a real feeling of like you can just be free to do what you want do you know what i mean like but you know there was there was only one guideline which was that it had to make the the subs in forward rattle and that was it really (laughs) yeah but basically that tempo and the sub basically was was just about the only parameters that there were yeah and then so it's interesting that you mentioned horror show because i mean horror show is arguably like what well, well it was it was basically the first super minimal half step tune yeah basically that, i mean yeah, that, that yeah. had been half step tunes before but it was definitely established that kind of aesthetic which yeah. i mean sort of what i mean that was i guess the template which eventually kind of took over and it obviously became was built upon and became something you know a bit more noisy and a bit more you know in your face uh compared to that but I've, i mean that was that struck me as being a turning point and i think haunted was definitely a turning point too uh musically um just because of that wobble sound so i mean i, I just yeah i'd yeah. actually totally forgot i'd totally forgotten haunted like just that yeah that's <laughs> that's a funny memory that was that's an incredible track um Right. Okay. So let's we're we're in danger of of uh, getting into like to, reminiscing a little bit too hard here. So um, let's okay. Think about uh, how basically we got from that uh, sort of that that situation where like what you know the the experiences that we've just been talking about were in a room full of a very small number, relatively small number of people like it wasn't a full club but it was just great vibes and like people loved it and then in 2006 there were two key events first of which was the Marianne Hobbs dubstep war show which you appeared on and then the DMZ second birthday or first birthday um so tell me about 
about tell me about the Marianne Hob- Marianne Hobbs show. How did how did your appearance on that come about, and what was it like as a experience? Well, I think at the time I was quite um, close with the vexed guys, so Jamie and Roly, and I was probably. I, th- I think we would, I don't know, I think I was just sending him, like whenever I kind of was, was starting stuff, I would send him little little clips and, and whatever and, and, and vice versa. And I think, I think Jamie, I think, again, I think because they were coming a bit from a more of a rock background, I think he was taking, you know, he was really interested in it. I think because he could hear that I was coming with it, with maybe a bit more an industrial live, I don't know, element to it in a, in a more distorted sound like a, you know guitars and whatever and um and then i just remember one day having a chat with him and he was like oh you know he said marianne hobbs from radio one he said she's she's looking to put together this show um all on on dubstep you know on her breeze breeze block uh show and i was like okay and and i think back then you know it was like everyone was kind of really guarded about doing stuff weren't they everyone kind of was, was i don't know i don't know why we were like that <laughs> It's such a different mindset. Yeah. It was absolutely, absolutely right, though. Yeah, people you know. were so funny about, like, revealing tunes. I know. It's like, like well, who, <laughs> okay, who's guys, she? Like, why, why does she like it? Well, where's it going to be played to? And, you know, uh, you know, it was all just a bit strange about everything. So, so I was like, but I, th- I think I wasn't too bad. So I was like, yeah, no, that sounds fine, you know. And then I think literally not long after that, my phone rang and, it, and then it was Marianne Hobbs. And she was, oh, yeah, this is Marianne. I was like, oh, hi, yeah. And she said, oh, look, I'm thinking of doing the show. And she just explained, she said, you know, I'm just basically going to let you have 15 minutes each. And so then you can just play whatever you want to play. Like there's no restrictions. You can just basically, this is your time to just, you know, she was like, I just want the show to completely and utterly showcase what you're doing and what this sound is in, in you know, in London or, or, you know, in the UK. And then that was basically it. Not like, and then um, I think it got booked in. And I think I don't think it started till really early in the morning. I don't know if it was like two or or one o'clock in the morning. And um, so, did you do it? Did you do it live? Yeah, it was, it was live. Yeah. So I, I thought because basically I, n- I never really used to practice my sets at all. But then I thought I remember I think it was like a couple of days before, and I thought, well, hang on. I thought, right, I'm getting 15 minutes here. I said, so I better damn well know what I'm doing with these 15 minutes. Otherwise, you know, if I do like some amazing longed out mix, I'm going to turn around and they're going to go, right, that's it. And I'll be like, oh shit, I've played like two tunes. So, um, yeah. And I knew I had the, I think the planet, you know, by then I think I'd almost had like the planet move album kind of tied up. So I thought, right, well, that's it. I need to just work this out. So I really kind of worked out what I was going to do. Um, and then that was it. I remember sitting, staying awake because we were going to get picked up. You know, everything just seemed so crazy. You know, I think I was picked up by, it, it wasn't a limousine, but it felt like a limousine because <laughs> I was young. And it was in the middle of the night and this, this black car with blacked out windows just pulled up outside my house and bibbed its horn and I came up there. And then that was it. I was like the only person in this car and it like drove me up to the radio, uh, you know, BBC studios. And then everyone was down there and they were all like, already cracking on drinking and whatever. So who then, else Who um, else played felt, for the benefit of the audience? Yeah, so it was me, uh, the Vex guys, Code 9 and Space Ape, um, Hatcher, Scream, Lofar and Mala. I think that's it. Yeah, so there was, it was, is it six acts or seven? Yeah, so me, Vex, uh, Code yeah. 9, Mala, Scream, Hatcher, 
Vex, I'm, I'm getting confused. I'm probably saying the same name, same over again. But yeah, that was basically either way. You had 15 minutes each, basically. Yeah, there was a good, yeah, was yeah, a good yeah. Movie. yeah. Um, but it was insane. Like, um, I think, I, and I was the last one to play, so I was kind of like watching everyone else playing and you know, kind of getting on it and. And I just thought, oh, okay, so I've got to kind of jump up right at the end and finish this thing off. Um, you know, and it was all mixed up. That must on. be pretty nerve-wracking. It was a little bit, but I think I'm, I'm just weird. Like, I don't really think about these things. I'm just kind of like, well, I'm not going to... There's no point in me thinking about it because I've got to do it. So I'll just kind of enjoy chatting to people. <laughs> and then when I'm there, half, it's, <laughs> it's too late to consider anything else. I've just got to get on and do it. And I think because I'd kind of planned what I was going to do as well, I think it just made me feel confident enough to just jump up and do it but um but saying that you know we're all playing on dub plates so you know yourself it's like anything can go can't it it's like just queuing up yeah dodgy, high dodgy. wire djing yeah yeah you know and like nothing you know it's like you're ready to drop the tune and then it, it jumps where you've queued it and you've missed the point where you wanted to drop the tune you know so it's it's all annoying <laughs> with uh with, with dub plates as amazing as they were like you had to fight to to mix your tunes um and then that was it, it finished. Um, it went so quick, as you can imagine, like 15 minutes is nothing really when you're mixing. And then um, and then that was it. I kind of like, then someone drove me home and I kind of sat in my bedroom and I was like, this is really weird. Like something, you know, you kind of felt like something really special has just quite happened. It has happened, but you weren't quite there. And then um, I think the following day, everyone was just kind of like messaging each other, just saying like, wow, like last night was just insane weren't it like wasn't that mad like I can't believe that just kind of happened I think everyone kind of felt a bit like did that really happen it just felt it just felt really <sighs> surreal like you know because like nothing like that was happening was it we were just kind of I don't yeah. know rock, rocking up to forward and rinse and being like yeah this is this is cool and then all of a sudden I don't know you're kind of shoved in this real established environment I don't know yeah I mean so there had been a little bit of movement before that so for example I mean I mean you mentioned that you'd already been talking to Planet Mew about doing an album and notably like Reflex had been releasing compilations which they called Grime but were actually dubstep in from two from 2004 so there was kind of like peripheral interest from other sort of similar minded scenes I think and like you know you loads of like randoms would turn up up forwards like you know just to see what was going on without ever really being you know properly part of it but there were yeah so there were kind of there were little kind of hints that you know things something might happen but it really didn't feel it was definitely not guaranteed by any stretch of imagination. And, and, you know, if I think if you'd asked any of us at the time, is this going to go anywhere? Like the smart answer would have been no. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but so also after that, after the show in the kind of following weeks was, I mean, do, do you remember like if there was any kind of tangible shift because the, the, uh, DMZ second birthday was like I think it was like four or five months later and that was when it really became clear to everyone but but in just in the immediate aftermath of the Marion Hobbs thing which was I think it was 10th of Jan 2006 was the broadcast date or the date you did it so was there did you remember there being a you know a tangible difference I think there was but I think um, I don't I think at the time I don't think I really I don't know I don't think I really noticed I think it was kind of gradual but I don't think it's so strange. Like the, the whole, the whole of the whole thing that we've been through is 
it's just like I don't know. It, it all feels so random and and strange. Like it just kind of happened, and you weren't really aware it was happening. You was just kind of going, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll play there. Yeah, I'll come here, and oh, someone from America just asked if I want to go. Yeah, 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 I'll come to America. You know, it wasn't like I don't know. It was really strange, but uh, but definitely, you know, Europe. Um, things just started to to kick off just you know just these nights but then you would see that they were happening every month just like so you'd be like oh okay so like now there's like a regular oh there's oh you know oh there's there's three regular nights now in in holland oh there's three regular nights in belgium and oh you know everyone then was starting to post up you know their tour date or you know the gigs they've got on myspace did you remember that and you would look and you'd be like, okay, so <laughs> yeah. so-and-so's got like seven shows coming up. You're like, okay, that's, that's unusual. And then before you know, you're like, oh, well, hang on. And then you post up your shows. You're like, oh, well, I've got five shows coming up. That's, that's unusual. And then um, I think it just kind of went further and further. But I think it was just how far it reached. You know, I remember getting, you know, going to, I think the first time I went to America was that year, actually, with um, Pinch. And it was just insane. Like the re- the response and just excitement from the people there and then, you know, the next thing you're being asked to go to like New Zealand and you're just like, what is going on? It was just, you know, it's just really crazy and just, uh, but definitely it was that show, but it's strange. It's, it's, um, I don't think still, I don't I think at that time I didn't quite realize that maybe a lot of it was to do with that show. I just kind of thought, oh, it's just all, this is just how it's all panning out. You know, we're all just stuff's just coming in and it's just great but um obviously when you look back at it you realize what how much impact that show had on a you know on a global um scale um but yeah things did definitely build up after that and you know people contacting for you know wanting to sign stuff and yeah all all, all sorts of stuff was starting to bubble up after that so okay i mentioned the uh dmz first birthday um um, this is a story that's been told a couple of times on the show before, but I'm I'm always uh, I'm always keen to hear things from different perspectives. So, tell me your memories of that evening. Was it was this the one when it moved from one room to another? Was that yeah, the one? Yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was yeah. So I remember getting there, and I think before there would be a queue, wouldn't there? So that was quite normal. But maybe a queue, yeah, of a like, bit of a queue, maybe like, like hundred people, much, yeah. eighty people. But yeah, I remember us getting there. I don't know. I mean, it was probably only just open, and there was like there could easily have been over five hundred, or you know, five hundred say people queuing up, and it was just like, what is going on? It's like it's like waiting for doors to open. Yeah, literally. it's like ten o'clock, yeah. and there's like almost well, what looks like to me five hundred people here. This is a which bit is insane. the this is the capacity of the club basically yeah yeah of, yeah of, and then we got at, we and then you know point. obviously because we we're all on the guest list you know we all just go straight in and then before you know it it's full and and then I think it was about eleven o'clock wasn't it the music just got stopped and then you heard uh, a Mella, uh Mark on the mic just say like right everyone you know basically this is the deal we're because there's so many people outside, we can't fit them in. We're going to have to open up um, the club upstairs, which was, uh, which was, um, that was mass, wasn't it? She had third base, which is 
where it was always and then opened up uh, mass wasn't it yeah just for the for the benefit of the audience third yeah the benefit for the benefit of the audience third base was essentially room 3 of the mass that's hence third base so which so which was I mean the mass is a big big venue it's like i think the total cap is like 2 to 3000 or something but like the third base room is like roughly 500 so essentially what happened was that they had to move the whole event midway through the night from the third room to the main room, which were, you know, probably increased the capacity by at least a yeah. thousand people because they had a thousand people waiting yeah, outside yeah, yeah. <laughs> for a 500 capacity show. I mean, this to me, I remember, I remember just being completely shocked at the time, yeah, just, yeah, com- yeah, yeah. just blown away. Yeah. Like it's like, what well, you know, these people are really all here to to come and see this, you know. And um, but I remember it was they kept open. Um, unless it was a different night but I'm sure they kept open for a base as well and it was kind of like a free-for-all so everyone was just kind of jumping on <laughs> and like yeah. playing in there as well uh but yeah it was yeah it was insane it was in it was it was a, such a crazy yeah crazy feeling but then also the people there it was much more diverse like you had people who'd come over from America you know this is when you were starting to get people coming over from other countries just for the um the birthday bashes because they were hearing online how crazy they were um yeah yeah it was insane yeah crazy yeah i mean dave dave q was there that night he told this story on the show and joe nice in fact joe nice was playing when they stopped the music downstairs like he was it was his set yeah they, they stopped yeah, that's right yeah yeah um and and then and moved it up but like just in the context of uh you know as what well, what we've been talking about for the past 45 minutes or so just this this incredibly exciting music scene which had next to no people interested in it just suddenly seemingly overnight and it it wasn't overnight as you just said because i mean like the the Marion Hobbs show was was really significant and i think there would probably you know it had probably been building you know, in a way that we weren't quite keeping track of up to that point yeah. too. But it really felt like someone had flipped a switch to me anyway yeah. on, that, on that night. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let me ask you about Planet Mew then because we just uh, we touched upon that just before in terms of the interest of the, I suppose... <sighs> Um, I don't even know what the genre I would describe at that point, Planet Mew and labels like Planet Mew and Reflex. I guess it's sort of breakcore adjacent to electro, adjacent to, I don't know, techno, I don't know, whatever. However you sort of describe it. Like, what point did um, Mike Paradinus reach out to you? Or was it like that? Or did you send him demos? Or like, how did it work? Um, I think... Again, I think through, because um, I think Jamie, yeah, so Vexed, I think had just signed um, their album to Planet Moo. I don't think it had come out. Oh, uh, Vexed signed first, yes, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. so I think they yeah. signed first. Um, and then, like I said, you know, we were all showing each other music and, and Jamie was like, you've got to show some of this to um, Mike. And I was just like, okay, cool. And he was like, I can't remember whether I whether he linked us up, you know, via an email or whether he sent him some stuff. I think I think he might have showed him Traffic, which was uh, one of my early tracks. And then I think he contacted me, and he was just like, you know, oh, is there anything else you've got? Um, so I sent him, I don't know, maybe like four or five tunes. And then but it was funny because at the time he was specific because I, I think I think in my 
it was a weird time, you know, everyone was just, you know, people were just then going, yeah, I'm making an album, I'm doing this, I'm doing that and blah, blah, blah. So I think I sent it to him kind of like thinking, oh, it'd be nice to do an album, wouldn't it? But like it come almost in like this first email, it was just like, yep, I'm interested in doing a single. Like, but yeah, probably probably not an album and all this kind of stuff. So I was like, well, that's cool. You know, like if you want two of my tunes or whatever, that's that's still like amazing. And then about two weeks after that, he called, got back in touch with me. He was just like, look, he was like, how do you feel about doing an album? And I was just like, uh... I was like, I don't know. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to have a think about it. And then I think it just kind of went totally over my my head. And then um, yeah, about three weeks after, I was just like, you know, I think kind of just sunk in. I was like, hang on a minute. It's like, did, is, have I just been asked to do an album for Planet Moo? And then I think the next day, I just straight away called him up. And said, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. I'm definitely up for doing an album. Um, and then <laughs> and then that was it, really. And it kind of come together really easy. Like I didn't um. It wasn't like I had, I was constantly trying to make tunes and then he was like, no, you know, I'm not really this one. You know, what else have you got? Maybe write five, you know, it, was, it, it all happened really quite or, organically. Um, so, yeah, we've actually had um, on the show previously a number of people who've released with Planet Mew, so like Machine Drum and Fauti DL uh, and I think maybe one more too. And... Um, like Mike, I, I don't know Mike at all. I've never talked to him, never met him, but his uh, reputation precedes him in terms of the way he A&Rs the label. Like sometimes he's extremely hands-on, like Travis Machine Drum was uh, telling some stories about his experiences trying to get an album together with Mike. So like for you, it was quite um, it was quite straightforward, was it? Yeah, it really, really was. And um, But I think it was, I think the way that came around, yeah, was I think I literally might have I can't remember this is how bad it is I can't remember how many tunes are on that album I think it might be 12 and I think I might have had 13 tunes do you know what I mean and um right okay but there was quite a lot of things that happened during that process that really helped me moving on because I remember I remember he had picked all the tunes you know I, I would then you know I was obviously continuously writing and then I'd start sending him newer stuff like, oh what about this you know this might be good in the album and he was just like no 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 he's like you know, I can I can hear a change in the in this, these new ones you're giving me. And he says, you don't want that on an album. He says, keep those. You want to keep those for the next thing. He says, because, you know, you want people to hear you progress as you release music. You don't want six tunes that sound that they, they, they all fit together. And then you've got this one tune where like the mix down's 10 times better and you're, you're kind of on a different um, journey, you know. And that really kind of, that actually stuck with me because I always thought that's really interesting. Like it's better for people to show i think it's good for people to hear a musical journey in your stuff you know over your career rather than you constantly fighting for the best version because i think you know you probably i mean we're all guilty of this but I've, I've known so many producers over the years where they're just striving so much for the perfect mix down and the perfect this and they're constantly second guessing themselves where they never make anything do you know what i mean like it's just Whereas if you just finish something and start something else, the chances are when you start something else, it's going to do all the things you were wishing this old tune would have done, you know? So yeah, you learn, you learn it was, it was from the process of yeah. finishing something, don't you? And then you can take it forward. Yeah. Into, but I mean, that's a great piece of like A&Ring actually. So to be able to, to, you know, say like, yes, okay, this stuff's great. But like, if we've got a vision for this piece of work, then it's going to, you know, it's not going to add to it to have this stuff, which is, maybe on some level better but if it doesn't make sense then it's going to re- you know it's going to take something away from the sound of this project that we're doing right now right that's a, that's a really good piece of advice for a new producer totally and um 
Yeah, so then so that was it really. I think yeah, I think I've literally made like like I said, thirteen tunes and I think he picked twelve of those and they might have all been reasonably close to being finished. So it kind of happened really um quickly. And then um and then I think yeah, what it was two years after after and then I think we did a single that was, you know, a single taken from that album plus um a vexed remix of Fallen, you know, that tune I did on a, a released on Boca. Um yeah, and then not long after that he, Oh yeah, I remember yeah, that, yeah, and then not long after that he asked for a second album and um it was a similar thing. I literally sent him nine tunes and he just went, Yeah, they're great. <laughs> I was just like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I was kind of expecting this, you know, I, again, like I just needed to kind of finish one or two of them. But you know, and then he said, "Oh, I've got an." I mean, obviously, by them I had chest plate rolling, and he said, "Oh, you know, would you be up for us bundling uh, a chest plate CD with it? You know, like maybe like the last four releases you've done on chest plate, we'll put with it." So in in and then in the album, you know, the CD package you had the new album, and then um, basically for chest plate releases on on a cd you know so so okay let's just let's just put this in a little bit of context here so my demons was the first record and that came out in 2007 and repercussions 2008 so like as you said pretty quick afterwards and then chest plate is was oh yeah it wasn't even oh yeah yeah it was it was so was that i mean when you uh when you were describing just then like you know the the sort of A&R process for the first record like had you made some of those tracks that came on the second record like already when you were releasing the first album or was it a, a new set no 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 I don't think I had no because I think even though that record came out in I don't know there's a chance I might have had some really rubbish loops that that ended up turning out to be you know I evolved but I didn't have any of those tunes uh written I think it's really strange like uh, and I say this to, to to quite a few people when they tell me they're making an album is um like I almost get to a point and I'm like right I'm making an album and I try and make it as quickly as I can because I've always found I find that the sooner the the, the shortest amount of time that you make an album in or a collection a collection of material then I find it's way more co- coherent, you know, than if me making mm. two tunes, say this month, and then in, you know, I'm just ticking along. And then six months later, I'm like, oh yeah, th- maybe these two two tunes could work with that album. And then another six months, oh yeah, these two tunes. You know, I find like, if I'm just like, no, like I'm going to make an album. I find if I spend like two months, three months just focusing on that, it's almost like, almost like, if I, you know, and I try and come up with a concept as well, no matter how loose that concept might be. But I just find that helps you make, something that's coherent with itself. You know what I'm trying to say? Like it doesn't yeah, yeah, yeah. feel like, oh, here's, here's a token jazz tune. <laughs> you know, here's, you know how some people, but you know what I'm saying, don't you? People go, oh, I'm doing an album now, so I better have one vocal tune. Uh, I'm going to try and make a jazzy tune. Um, you know, do you know what I mean? Like I've just thought, no, you just need to kind of knuckle down and just try and make something feel like it's all come from the same period in time like it's all almost like for a film I've, i guess that's because uh, i think i've always been massively massively inspired by scores for films and soundtracks i think that's how i look at my albums and um, there was a metal band that i was a massive fan of called uh, fear factory and that's basically what they did like one of their albums was basically based on judgment day terminator 2 they were like well basically judgment day 
is is our second album like it's just we're we're imagining that that's for that film you know and i find that's easier is if i kind of like have almost like a a, you know an aesthetic and a feeling and a vibe and i'm like right well that's what i'm writing for is this i don't know this story whatever that might be Hmm. but um yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense so let me in that case ask you my albums question which i've asked many people on the podcast um which relates to like albums as they are now because we're talking about you know your first two records like 2002 2007 2008 and um there was a then a big gap until the next one which came out in 2016 yes uh but even since 2016 i think the way people listen to music and see music has has moved on a bit so i mean do you think you'd make an album now in the same way do you think there's any point in doing that if i did it would purely be for me if you mm. see what i mean i wouldn't be doing it to gain i don't know if i'd be doing it to gain like a massive new following or to make money you know because if i wanted to press a vi- an album on vinyl for one that's just going to be a ridiculous amount of money and i don't think people listen to albums i, I think you know, I think me and you still would because we come from a time where that's what we did. Do you know what I mean? Like I remember listening to one album for maybe six months over and over and yeah, over. Yeah, literally over just that album. Like three, <laughs> yeah. There might be three albums and it's like, I'm rotating these three albums for the whole year, maybe five albums. Whereas now I think someone goes, Oh, check this tune. And they check this tune and they buy it on an EP, but they're just listening to that one tune they like on that EP. And then the next day, one of their mates is like, oh, no, no, check this out. And then they check that out. And because it's on Spotify, it's like you're not, you don't, you're not investing in any of the music. Do you see what I mean? Like you're not, you know, whereas like I had to, you know, you'd save your money or whatever you've worked and then you go to, <laughs> you go to our price <laughs> and you, uh, <laughs> and you buy your 16 pound Pantera album. Do you know what I mean? And you're like, yeah, like, I've just spent sixteen pound or whatever it was on this album, and I'm gonna just listen to well, it. We're gonna get your money's worth, right? It and yeah, whereas, um, but I've had conversations with my dish, you know, the distributor for for chess play, and I'm like, you know, I think this was a couple of years. I think this is when lockdown was just happening. I said, look, I was like, be straight with me. I'm like, what's the best way to release music right now? Like, should I be doing an EP? Should I be doing albums? And he said, you know what, the best thing is to do right now. And I was like tell me and he said just one track singles he said people's attention span is so small and he said and also people are releasing like eps say with like four big tunes on and he said but people will only really listen to one and then that's it the next day or two days there's another ep out and they're doing exactly the same thing he said so you almost just want to trickle an an idea i've had that i've heard other artists have done is, is they've trickled one tracks well you know one a track every month for the year and then say December you're like bang right well all those were singles from my album yeah, but, yeah that's my album it as yeah. a package yeah yeah <laughs> so I think I just think you've got to approach it in a different way I mean I don't know how I mean I've got no idea how it works in the commercial world you know with people you know I mean it's basically the same I mean that that strategy is a widely used commercial strategy now like you really you yeah. release at least five or six singles uh and then 
their most of the album i mean like there's a very small number of artists who are able just to do a sort of you know just album drop off the cuff like you know your taylor swift or kendrick lamar or whatever who are able to just dump 12 tracks and you know they've they've got sufficient fans that they're all all the tracks will get listened to enough but for the vast majority of people you've got to take that singles strategy it's funny because as you were saying that it did strike me that that's almost back to a dub plate mentality you know like just one track at a time you make a big banger it gets played and then you move on to the next one right i hadn't even thought about like that until you were saying that but like yeah i mean it's like the ad the album as a as a you know a, a format as a concept like i mean i've said this on the four on the show before a number of times it's it's sometimes a little bit it doesn't quite fit with electronic with, with club music anyway it doesn't quite fit with that mm. mentality you know because no. i mean like regardless of the genre of club music whether it's house or techno or drum and bass or whatever like those genres of music have always revolved around big tunes yeah basically yeah, 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 it's true yeah i mean i think um i actually think because i've thought about this a lot like i'm you know i'm very interested in um i almost feel like as you know as i getting older and moving on I'm getting more and more I mean I've always been about like melodies and like strong riffs I think coming from rock and stuff but I'm getting more and more into like melodies and harmonies and you know so I almost feel like if I make an album it's almost like it's gonna be so conceptual that then that's what that is like it's almost like so you know I'm distance I make dubstep and here's an album but this I mean it's probably the completely wrong thing to do but I would rather make an album now that is literally like this is a piece of music on its own and um, it's almost got nothing to do with me going, here's a banger for the club. Like this is just something, this is an experience, this piece of music and whatever happens to it, you know, is is, is fine. But that's what, that's, that's, that's what this is for. This is for you to listen to and enjoy in a different way from me just making distance tunes that I've written for a club. Do you see what I mean? Like I'm kind of, that excites me more than trying to make 12 distance dubstep tracks, you know, I'd rather. And also I think something that's lost that I think was so important that we took for granted. And I think it used to frustrate us even is like, you know, like we would hear a dub plate for like a year, wouldn't we? And we'd be like, I want that tune. Like before we were really involved in, you know, when I think back to the, the real early days, like when I was talking about EZ and stuff, like you'd hear EZ play a tune by Oris J or someone. And I remember asked calling Black Market almost every month going, have you got that tune yet? They're like, no, 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 not yet. Call me next month, you know? And that, that just doesn't exist. But I think, cause back then, like, ah, oh, the, um, you know, like the, the, the outlet for where, or the places we had to go to listen to music was so slim Whereas now it's like, it's like, who do I listen to? It's like, I've got SoundCloud, I've got Spotify, I've got uh, YouTube. It's like, it's like you're bombarded with who to listen to. And then and who's the tastemaker now? Like, do you see what I'm saying? It's like, there's, there's so many people, there's so many people shouting for your attention. It's kind of like, whereas before it's like you had two people that are like, the, I'm listening to these guys because they're the tastemakers. It's like, oh, that tune, that tune, I just want this tune so bad. And you know you'd build it up and build it up and build it up and release that tune, right? And it's it's not good enough to listen. It's not good enough to listen to it on the radio, right? You yeah, have to yeah, own yeah. it, right? Because that's the difference now, right? There's no scarcity now. No. Like there's a difference between hearing something, hearing hearing EZ play it, and being able to hear it. But like the difference between that and actually holding it 
a physical copy of it in your hand and like we're definitely sounding like tired yeah. old men here i realized but like but it was just a different mentality and it's impossible not to feel some kind of nostalgia for that yeah, i think totally. like it's very difficult not to but anyway. i just think um you know but it's like yourself you know uh, uh, you know when 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 you sign a record like back in the day there would be some kind of anticipation for that tune like it's like well i've heard you know i've heard um you know, I've heard it be played on on Rinse FM by four DJs. Uh, I've heard you know this DJ play it, that DJ play it. But um, it, you know, you're building up this want for it. Whereas now it's just like you know I'm sent tunes and they're like, yeah, this is out next week, and you're like, okay. And it's like, well, I've not you know, it's like the yeah. whole the whole that that <laughs> whole well, massive I mean promotional side of things where you build up an excitement for a tune have just disappeared, haven't they? It's like you because basically it shows how disposable it all is. It's like, well, you just here, it's finished, you know. Well, I I mean a prime example being our collab which is coming out on friday which we finished well, yeah. <laughs> three weeks ago or something and it's now just coming yeah, yeah, out yeah. you know like set out the promo last week yeah, so like, I've, I've had people going when did you make this like when did you two decide to do this like they're, they're like, like they're hurt and i'm like i don't like it's what it's like it just come around like we did it you know there's no big strategic sit down and right this is how we're going to do it you know it's like uh, <laughs> But yeah, but whereas, but, but, you know, if we'd gone back 20 years, say in that time, that probably would have been on dub plate for a year. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's completely different. Whereas that, that wouldn't work. Like people would have, people wouldn't care about it by then, would they? If people wait a year for it, like, well, I've listened to a million and one other tunes now. Exactly. Forgotten about that one. Yeah. So um, it's very strange. It's been, it's really hard navigating the way forward, I think, in uh, releasing music and running labels and all sorts yeah just the pace of change is extremely quick you know like it's like as i said like since since 2016 it's changed and it changed completely between 2010 or 2012 and 2016 but um let me let me uh let me go back because i mean there's a there's a there's a big chunk that we've kind of missed out here that i wanted to talk about which was um sort of between 2008 i think between 2008 and 2011 12 is the kind of big dubstep sort of peak bubble period basically or maybe 2009 and um you came and played for us at burkine at substance nights and i was looking at the dates and and you played july 2008 april 2009 and january 2011 so like right in that kind of like you know peak dubstep frenzy period so um, I mean, you've given us a, an idea, like of, of what it was like when it was sort of breaking, like the like 2006, and like you know, international bookings are starting to pick up. But like, what was it like being part of that dubstep scene? I mean, I sort of extricated myself gradually from it between 2008 and 2011. But like, what was it like being part of that sort of frenzy and, <laughs> and sort of uh, yeah, like seeing different people jump on it who had definitely not been part of it prior to that tell me tell me a little bit about that experience yeah i mean first of all i think it was um, it was you know looking back it was it was an amazing time and um i mean yeah i guess you i don't think you just i I just don't think you realize how lucky you are when things like that are going on you know and um but yeah i think i think there was always a side of us where 
you felt quite precious. I think because we knew what it had come through and how tightly knitted it was. And it was all, you know, everyone always says about this, the community and family vibe and whatever. But obviously as it gets bigger, it's like, you can't, it's no, it's no, it's, I think it's like, it's completely out of your hands, isn't it? It's like out of nowhere, you can wake up. There's a new name that you've never heard of. You've never met. They've never passed you a dub plate. And now they're, they're playing everywhere as well. Do you see what I mean? Like, and I think that was the biggest learning curve for a lot of those people a lot of us was what, you know, and that was shown, this is what the internet can do and social media can do because I remember, was it people like, um, there was a guy from Mount Eden, uh, from, from New Zealand. I think they were called Mount Eden because that's where they were from. And everyone was oh, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. everyone was like, oh my God, this person's got like 10 million plays on YouTube. This guy must be massive, you know? And the reality was, it's just some, some dude who just made the track and, and uploaded <laughs> it to YouTube, you know, and it was, but we were seeing all these crazy shifts, weren't we? We're like, hang on a minute. So this guy's going to headline because he's got 10 million plays on you. You know, it was, it was so strange. We're like, but like, you know, he's not been played by Mella. How can that happen? <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like it's, but it was like that, wasn't it? Cause we were from like this time. We're like, yeah, but like you're, you've got to earn your stripes. Like you've got to be played by certain people um so yeah i don't know if that really answers your question but i mean but being part of it it was just crazy like just just being able to travel and just go go to places and uh you know basically do something you love um f- for a living you know and I, and I didn't even i think the way it happened is i, d- I didn't even realize it, it was happening if you see what i mean um you just all of a sudden were like oh well i mean because i remember quitting my job you know i was a i was a builder uh, with my stepdad before and um, it just got to the point where you know it was just like well I can't do I don't think I can really do both anymore so I had to just stop you know so that on its own was insane but I was I didn't feel like I was having to do anything special in order for that to happen and I know it sounds crazy but it was just like it just kind of happened I was just kind of earning enough money to you know it was just out of nowhere it's just like, oh well this is kind of supporting me financially now so all right cool i'll just make music then and, i mean and it was DJ. just a wave yeah it was just it was insane yeah, it, was I mean, insane. The, it was just you know and i never really yeah. there's no big strategy it was just kind of like oh well i've kind of i'm kind of booked up nearly every single weekend and you know back then we were selling vinyl and you know i was i went for a crazy period of just having endless like remix work coming so it's just like well i'm kind of okay you know i'm not really trying very hard to get this stuff it's just people just wanted dubstep was just the flavor wasn't it and that was it it was just like the work was just coming your way so you know leaving work just meant i could say yes to everything you know yeah totally i mean like one of the things that struck me and well one of the things that i sort of remembered when you as you were saying that was like in in that kind of initial sort of 2006 7 period like I remember there being a little bit of sort of competition between, I mean, like maybe competition is the wrong word. Yeah, maybe competition is the right word actually. Like, you know, there were there were the kind of early winners of the, uh, you know, the the initial frenzy. You know, so like you know, people there were people who were like immediately really busy and fees are going up and getting agents, and there was a bit of like you know, a bit a little bit of understandable kind of like a bit of envy, a bit of jealousy, but that. That sh- but that shifted quite quickly to if you had been there at the start, then it's like everyone knew, you know, the people that were there at the start 
like you know who those people are and it's always cool with those people and that's like um always been my kind of even even though i basically took myself out of the scene in a pretty unambiguous way yeah like it's always been since then like i mean the, the people who were there know the the people who were there you know before all that stuff yeah, yeah, happened yeah, yeah you know? totally yeah 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 so okay Very much. we got to so yeah okay eight nine ten eleven mega frenzy i think um when I was when I had Nicole from Denver on the show, who I believe you know, she runs the Black Box venue on the original yeah. dubstep promoters yeah, in yeah, the yeah. states. Like we were talking, um, we we got onto the uh, the topic of the the North Americans jumping on the sound and how right. that wasn't that great for <laughs> for a lot of us <laughs> in terms of the way we viewed the music. Tell me a little bit about how your uh, how you viewed. Um, the different influences, shall we say, that came into the sound from probably 2010, 2011 onwards? Yeah, well, I think I was very, I think I was probably way more accepted than a lot of people. Like there was a lot of people around me who were not happy at all. (laughs) Like really, really not happy. But for me, I don't know. Like I, I think I'm just really laid back and I just thought, well... You know, I, I think my thing is, is like, well, I can't control who likes me or who likes someone else. Like, I just can't, can I? It's like I can, you know, you can have the the, the best equipment, the most amazing hookups, uh, but that still isn't going to guarantee that your music's going to sell out and you're going to sell out shows to like, you know, 20,000 people. So i don't know it's kind of like i was why should i be that concerned about it i mean i think that you know initially there might have been a little thing like oh my god okay so this guy just kind of come out of nowhere and yeah they're they're playing to like twenty thousand people in america or whatever but it's like yeah you know but apart from it's like yeah but i'm i don't know it's like i'm not in america am i and i don't come from there and i just kind of felt like it's just, a, you know, I think my initial thing was, I was just like, well, this isn't dubstep. I was like, this is just, it's just a different thing. So, you know, they've just, someone's just attached that name to it because that's where their inspiration has probably come from, which has led to this style of music they've made. And then someone's probably said, well, what is this? And they've said dubstep. And then that's it. It's attached to it. And there's nothing we can do about it. Um, but I think some people found that really hurtful because that sound blew up so big then when people were hearing you know the original sound they're like no that's not dubstep you know and i think that's when people got really, <laughs> yeah, that was it, isn't it? <laughs> really yeah. pissed off because they're like you know who's this guy he's come out of nowhere he's like massive and now everyone thinks that what we've made is not dubstep you know but i think i've actually time, got, I've got to remember, say let me, let me let me interrupt you there and say on, i'd forgot i'd forgotten about that but that's exactly how i felt even though i was like like i had more than half a foot out of it at that point i i was yeah. so infuriated by people saying nah <laughs> like like a digital mystics track and be like sort of turning their nose up at, at it yeah. you know and like nah nah what's yeah, this yeah, yeah. it's just like oh my god because i felt yeah. like a bit of, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I don't know what the right word is. A bit of ownership over that kind yeah. of aesthetic, having like basically put the hard yards in, you know, stood around in those half empty clubs for for years on end, you know, listening to amazing yeah. music which never got 
the props that it deserves yeah, like, yeah, and yeah. then being told by some fucking american apologies to american listeners but <laughs> some fucking <laughs> american that i don't know what dubstep is you know that really fucking stuck yeah. in my throat like <laughs> yeah and i think um there was a couple of i mean there was a couple of I mean, I've, I've said this on a number of shows as well and i think i actually might have said it around that time i remember having interviews and people were asking about you know what do you think about this new sound and whatever and you know and they said you know and the fact that it's getting so big and i put it this way i was like look when i was when i was 12 or 11 it's like i listened to guns and roses and um say bon jovi do you know what i mean it's like but when I was 16, I was listening to Pantera and Sepultura and blah, blah, blah. As in like, this is the accessible, you know, this, this new sound, it's just instantly pleasing. It's loud. It's very distorted. It's going to have the attention of a lot of, a lot of young kids, but these young kids in a few years are going to look beyond this sound and be like, Oh, well, hang on. So, oh, so this is dubs. Oh, that come from. Oh, so these guys in. Oh, so that's the. You know, you know. So I was just kind of like, well, that's going to happen. Like it might take four years, but in my head, I was like, it can only result in people delving a bit deeper. You know, and I think even um, wasn't there? There was like a, some crazy thing where um, I think Skrillex won. I don't know if he won like a Grammy or, or or something. And he stood up on stage and he said, "Yeah, you know," and he and he shouted out Croydon. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's kind of like, yeah. well, there you go. It's like. You know, these people haven't, you know, he didn't sit there and think, right, how can I really piss off every single original dubstep head in <laughs> England? I know I'm going to make this sound that everyone's going to, and they're going to hate it. And then I'm going to take over and, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. This is how I'm going to do it. You know, like he's just, he obviously liked that sound and that was his interpretation. And then he just got massive. Do you know what I mean? And it's kind of like, you can't control these things. I mean, yeah, you know, to some people, that's a hard pill to swallow. Um, but I think I was very kind of pra- uh, pragmatical about the whole thing. I was just like, well, that's just how it goes. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a shame. It's like, yeah, I'd love to play to 20,000 people and be playing my music to them. But it's like, well, I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's, there's so many... I think being involved in music like, you know, like we are or, or were or, yeah, are, it's like it's... I don't know. Like it's, it's, I don't think it's that easy. Like I think there's some people, there's some people I know and like, or even young kids or some people I meet. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, you are not the right. This sounds awful. But like you are not built for this <laughs> in a way. It's like, right. you know, if, if you're, if you're pranging out about little things now, it's like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, do you really, really want this? Like you want to put everything you're doing out in front of people there's going to be friends that you know who are also doing this that are going to do better than you. And you know what I mean? It's like, you've got to be willing to just kind of roll with it and be like, well, that's just how this goes. Otherwise, you know, I know. Yeah, it, it, and, people, and, and also, you know, it, you know it, what I'm it, saying? It doesn't like, get easier. It really doesn't get no, easier. You no, know, no, no, I was no, no. thinking to myself yesterday, I've got to stop comparing my music to other people. Like I'm you know, 20 years deep, right? I'm still having to yeah, say that yeah, to yeah. myself. You know, it's like, it's, yeah. yeah, it's not an easy thing psychologically to do at all, make music for a no. living. I definitely not. and um, and I, no, totally not. And like you know, at the moment, um, it definitely isn't my living. Do you know what I mean? It was my living, and it's not. But it's 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 a weird. Th- so you know, I'm probably jumping way ahead of all your questions here. But like for me, I got to a point because I went on a mad journey. Like after about probably the time you're talking about the real height time. You know, I I got linked up with um, a guy who was an A and R guy. 
you know, for like all you know, loads of major labels. And then I started getting all these remixes and then I was trying to get involved in actually producing for people and mixing for other people. So I was trying this whole new journey at the same time. And then I wasn't, I was still doing the dubstep thing as well, but I maybe wasn't as focused as I should. I don't know. It was all, it was all kind of a bit of a re- really weird mishmash. And then um, dubstep naturally kind of wound down, I think towards the end of 2016, 17. And then I think around then, like I really thought it was one of the first times where I thought, well, so now how, what do I do to make money from this? Do you see what I mean? Like it was at the point where it was like, I now need to work out because like, you know, I had this massive period of where I didn't have to think about this. Like, like I said to you a minute ago, I was just earning money from this. I didn't have any strategy. It was just happening. So then I was sitting in front of my computer like, well, what do I make? Like, what do I make to make money now? You know, and I thought there was something in me just said that that isn't what this is about for me. Do you know what I mean? It's like I want the freedom to just make whatever I want. And if that money comes, that's great. But I just felt like as soon as I asked myself that question, it was kind of like, well, then this that's the, that's the end for me looking at this as my income because I'm not. I don't know, I'm just going to end up making something I don't really like because I'm just trying to make a fast buck, if you, if you see what I mean. And I couldn't, I tried, and I was like, nah, so I can't I can't do this. So, um, so yeah, it's it's a strange one, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I think if I can just, now. let me Sorry. just, let me just, well, I mean, I'll just respond to that, that point. I think, like, a lot of people who were involved in that early dubstep scene have, at some stage, found themselves in that position because it was so... Um, I mean, this sounds slightly trite, but it was like it was so pure in a way that early that early period, like it was so genuinely uh, it was so genuinely free as as you said in in what you could do, and you didn't have to worry about it, and it was just you know a pure artistic expression, I guess, for want of a better term. I mean, that's a slightly it sounds like a slightly pretentious way of putting it, but I think that's basically what it was when you break it down. You know? Yeah, and then totally. so 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 to go from that producing a career to yeah. suddenly it not being able to give you that financial security that you got used to by, you know, your mm-hmm. artistic endeavor, then yeah, it's it's a very, very difficult position to find yourself in. And I think like it's it's, you know, you've got a dis- you've got a decision to make, as you said. You know, there's a decision to be yeah. made there. Like either you find something and it, and it's purely that's purely subjective. Like whether you can find something in music which gives you that same buzz. But if you can't mm-hmm then you're on you know you're on the clock basically and that's not what it's all about is it you know no and and you know yourself if i say to you right paul tomorrow you've got to make me a tune and i want it by the end of the day you know like but that's what it was like it's like you know you're you're sitting you know like sometimes looking at your computer screen at a blank Cubase project can be the most overwhelming thing, can't it? You're like, <laughs> yeah. well, where am I, where am I going to start? <laughs> so, what do I feel like doing today? Is this going to earn me any money though? Like, do I, am I going to waste my day doing something that potentially is just wasting my time? You know, like it was getting like that. So it's like, do you want to be faced with that? Or do you just want to feel like, well, I can just do whatever I want because it really doesn't matter what I make today. And if anything happens with it, you know, and, I think it's the biggest, I mean, what I'd say, especially to young people now is like, um, I don't know, like it'd be amazing. I think people just need to realise that like this stuff, 
unless you're super lucky, like it, it just can't last forever. Do you know what I mean? It's like you're, you know, like the promoters booking you, they're not going to be promoters forever. Do you know what I mean? Like loads of, the, this is the other thing, you know, so many promoters that me and you knew and, and like everyone else was booking for on a regular, like they get to a point where they're like, well, I'm going to have kids now. And yeah, do I want like to be staying up five? Do I want to be staying up till six o'clock every Friday and Saturday, picking up assholes from the airport and them demanding me that I have my weed when they land? And you know, it's like, no, I think I'm going to have kids now, so I'm going to go and find myself a real job. So you've got that, you know, that whole shift of like, well, now there's no promoters booking me anymore because they they're not doing it anymore. So you've got that side of things. You've got the side of, you know, there's a whole new audiences that come through who aren't going to know who you are, really, unless they can be bothered to go back and look. So you've got all these things to contend with. Um, but I'd also say if you are someone lucky enough to do it like I was and, and you were, it's like just do something clever with your money for christ's sake <laughs> don't go buying <laughs> yeah, rolex yeah. watches because i know so many people who like every time you see them oh look i've just bought a rolex oh i've got this car oh i've got this oh i've got that and it's like those people have got nothing now do you know what i mean like they have actually to, to be to be fair rolex watches aren't, aren't a bad show well, yeah They've actually gone, rolex gone up in value quite a lot thing. but like <laughs> but you but know, know what, what you saying, mean like, yeah 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 don't yeah, buy yeah. a it's new like, car like, basically just avoid no, that kind don't of buy a new car like, don't just, fly on a private jet no but then, you know, there are the odd people who might be earning millions and then it's like, well, then that's, that's fair play. But just, um, you know, you just got to, you just got to be a bit savvy. You know, I was lucky that, that, that I, I don't know, some, for some reason I decided I needed to buy a house when I was really young. Do you know what I mean? But if I hadn't have done mm. that, it's like, especially now, do you know what I mean? Like in London, yeah. like what, what are you going to buy in London? Like how much money do you need? You know, so I think you've just got to, Almost, I think when you're doing music like this, you don't treat it like a career, do you? You don't think about it like a grown-up <laughs> when you're when you're that age. Well, you know, you it's know, almost what? like this you is, need this to is, think about it like a. This is something that we've talked about on the show, and um, actually, on the episode last week with Manpower, we we're talking about how actually, in his experience, and actually, yeah, Sunil Sharp said this to me as well because he runs a or helps run a like a DJ school and that that kind of facility. And they both said they both said to me that actually younger people now kind of do see it as a career, as a viable career option, and actually kind of do build in these kind of like strategies and like take the kind of various different areas of you know expertise that you need to have. Going back to uh, your coffee Instagram posts, you know that, that kind of like you know uh, content generation that you need to have to support what you're doing artistically you know like by the marketing side of it now i think for a lot of young kids is it's just obvious that you have to do it i think if you've grown up with social media you kind of have that probably you probably have that to a certain extent anyway hardwired into the way you think about you the way you kind of present yourself to the world so um, but we didn't have that at all that was never i mean you're absolutely right to say that i mean i never i mean i like i i had it well i had half an eye from early on about you know keeping an eye on that on the bottom line stuff just and that's just purely from from running a label really and having to having to look at release finances and just like make sure like you know you're not you know <laughs> not going to have to um you know subsidize what you're doing on that side of things which just is a good sort of discipline to have generally but like definitely he was never thinking in terms of like how do i market my image for example like yeah I mean, yeah that's yeah. a totally different thing 
But anyway, let me let me just go back a little bit and like talk about this period between 2011 and say 2011 2012. And you you you, you identified 2016 as a as a point at which it started to go south dubstep i mean i mean i that's a sort of surprise to me i i i my 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 understanding was that like after kind of 2012 ish it there, there was a bit of a shift and um in my conversation with roscoe like we were talking about funky and how funky really fell off in 2012 and i just kind of assumed that the same sort of thing had happened with dubstep but like i mean tell me tell me about that period that sort of four four years or so what happened it's strange like i think i think maybe I think there was maybe some people where maybe it did fall off then. Do you know what I mean? But I think there were maybe people, like I said, there was all these things happening with, you know, going back to your own uh, confidence and, I don't know, strength, I, I don't know. But, you know, you've got all this American stuff popping off and it's like, like I said, whether you can still continue and move on from that and be happy that this is all going on and you're feeling confident enough that you can exist in that world and compete with that stuff. And I kind of, I felt like I, I could, and I, and I kind of was lucky enough that I, that I did. And, um, I had quite a lot of things going off for me. Like I think, um, you know, fabric, um, gave chess plate, um, room free, you know, we had a residency in room free and I think, oh, was it one extra? We had a little, daily dubstep daily dose of dubstep thing on one extra although that, that might have been i don't know if that was 2012 or 13 so we had like lots of things i think because of little things like that i think that kind of helped solidify me maybe a little bit more than some I, I don't i have no idea i don't know but um you know the label was quite big um I don't know. It's really hard to explain, but no, I was going to America regularly. Like all the, you know, I was going to America maybe three times a year, two times a year for quite a long periods. Um, I went through, there was, there's a, you know, a really big festival in New Zealand that was called um, Northern Bass. And I was the first DJ to play, uh, you know, I I, I don't mean I was the first DJ. I was, uh, I played at the first ever Northern Bass. And then after that, they just booked me every year. Like every, every time there was, um, so basically, it was, it was kind of like, without a doubt, I was like, oh, well, you know, if my wife was like, oh, so what's going on at Christmas? I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to New Zealand, you know. So that was just, that's just what happened to me. So for quite a long period of time, I think it was only around 2014, maybe 15, when that kind of thing stopped, if you see what I mean. So I was quite lucky that I had these regular things that, to me, again, you just take for granted, like, well, that's what I'm doing. Like, I always go to New Zealand, so that's where I'm going at Christmas and... um it, it was kind of just a little bit like that, you know, and, um, but there were definite shifts cu- coming up. Like, like I said, um, there was a certain nights dropping off. Like I said, where promoters, you know, you, you'd go and play for these people and like, mm, you know, yeah, the nights aren't doing so well now. So then, so you, you'd hear little things that like, like, okay. And they're like, yeah, we're thinking of going back to doing drum and bass again. And you're like, okay. You know, so there was little signs like that, you know, so, I was kind of aware of it, but it was kind of like, oh no, it'll still be okay, you know. Um, yeah, but I think at the same time, I was, like I said, I was on a separate journey where I was getting involved in doing a lot of, um, I was doing a lot of mix down work for um, artists that were trying to establish themselves through this connection I had. Um, his name was uh, Ross Allen. Um, and he was responsible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, 
was that was that mostly in the same kind of genre? Was it different? No, completely different. So there'd be things where you know he'd show me um, he'd show me a project and he'd be like, "Look, these people have just got signed. They're doing this album. Um, what do you think about this?" And I'm like, "Yeah, it's cool. Like the mix down's a bit this, and I think maybe it'd be cool if it did that." And he's like, "Oh well, you know, if I get you the stems, do you want to have a go? And you know, you try and make your own version of it, and then we'll see if they like it, and then we can do that." And um, uh, and around oh yeah so in 2013 he was um approached by someone who was managing uh rizwan ahmed or riz riz mc you know riz rizwan ahmed is a, now a huge actor um like i think he won an oscar last year but basically i spent i got i, I got an introduction to him and i showed him you know uh, ross was like look he wants to make an album i was like okay so we met up he he gave me I can't remember what he did. He showed me something he had done and then um, I basically wrote something and just sent it to him and he was like, I love it. And then he recorded something, sent it back to me. I finished it. And then the next thing was, like, oh, well, why don't you two do an album? So I was like, oh, okay. So basically for maybe a good year and a half, he came to my house in Bromley and we recorded in my bedroom, <laughs> just basically having a laugh and making an album. Do you know what I mean? And um so I had things like that going on. But in, in between that, I was still doing dubstep. I was still doing chest plate, still doing fabric. Um, I didn't know about this Riz Ahmed project. So what's he, what's he actually like? Oh, he's a, mate, he's, he's a lovely, honestly, like we had such a laugh. Like he was such a good guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we became really, really quite close friends then. You know, there was a, there was a time when he said, oh, do you know, how do you feel like coming to India? Yeah, some people want me to come to India. Do you want to come to India and DJ with me? And I was like, uh... I don't know. I think I, I, I would like that, <laughs> you know. And um, but then he was just getting more and more. Like his time was just getting crazy. Like I think at that time he was doing. He was filming. There was a, a series on HBO called The Night of, which I think was when he gets arrested. He wakes up and he gets arrested. So you know, and he did night crawl. Like you know, there's, we were so we were right in the middle of writing stuff. And then he's like, "Look, I've got to go to New York for like three months." So I was like, "Okay." And then he'd be calling me from like in between him filming with like notes of how he wanted stuff changed. And so that was a mad, a mad, mad time. But no, he was a lovely, really lovely guy. Like really, really uh, creative. But um, sadly, it all just kind of... He's a great actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but sadly, that all fell apart and nothing really happened. We had, um, we did two singles and um, I think it got, I don't know if it got playlisted, but like, you know, Zane Lowe was on it and Annie Mack and all stuff like this. And then um, it just kind of just never really surfaced into the album that we we had sitting there waiting. And then he, before you know it, he was off doing even bigger, bigger projects. And, but then I was moving on to other projects as well, like still doing my stuff, but then I was moving on to another band. Like I was working with a band not long after that and helping them do their album. But see, this was something I learned you know i was probably doing all this for three years but then i soon just kind of realized like i've probably made like three albums worth of material and all these other songs for people and it doesn't guarantee any of this music's ever going to get heard and i just thought that's really not cool with me do you know what i mean it's like i'm making music that i genuinely like as well like i'd always say like i can't make stuff for you that I don't like myself, you know, like I'd always try and make something that still resonated with me. And it wasn't dubstep, you know, it was just kind of, I don't know, it was like a mishmash of stuff. And, um, but that was the reason why I kind of knocked that on the head, you know, like, and I had opportunities to go and get signed with quite a large outfit 
to basically be someone that could be just a producer or just a you know or, or they'll be working to make me just a producer and a mixing engineer but it's the same old gig it's like I could spend you know 13 hours a day with someone in a studio and you know not necessarily earning loads of money like when you look at how much money you earn and how much time you've put in and then that stuff doesn't come out and then you're not getting any of the royalties you were promised so it's like well so what I'm basically maybe gonna earn money and I've spent a year and a half working on this do you see what I mean so it's kind of like well I think that's the whole thing with with music is you never really know do you (laughs) you never really know if you're gonna get the the thing you you need to survive so it was a strange a strange journey for me but I I did love it you know what I mean I loved working with artists and the mix down thing was really cool I did quite like doing that you know when someone would give you something and then you've tweaked it and they're like oh my god that sounds amazing you know that was all that was really cool and that was something I would consider doing again but um it's a very I don't know it's just a strange time very very strange time and plus having yeah, two I think, be, I think being a mix engineer I think being a mix engineer or even a mastering engineer like it's definitely a different thing to doing production because like when you're like removed from like the direct when, removed from the writing process and that sort of direct part and all you're doing is a, like a, an engineering job basically on something which you which has already passed master and you know you can get to a point I think that where you're well you can own I mean, the you know mixing engineers earn a fortune some of them and you, you know points on the record and all the rest of it and and but like you say it's still creative doing that it's mixing a record is a lot of fun and it's and it is 100% creative so yeah I think that's something that, that um yeah it's rewarding yeah in that kind of a way but then I think another thing is though is you know that I've seen over the years as well though is that you've got other people like me you know in the scene who offer that stuff but they're offering it for like 50 euros so you're like that's not it's not feasible do you know what i mean like how many of them have you got to do and, and know you're going to do every month in order to cover yourself do you know what i mean it's like you've got a really um you know it's just i don't know i, I quite like knowing I'm going to do something and someone just goes, there you go, there's your money. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, but I think that's because of me and my situation. You know, I've got two kids, I have a mortgage. So it's like, I have to pay for things. Do you see what I mean? Whereas if you're 30 and you're in a flat on your own, you've got no wife and kids and stuff. It's like, well, you know, you've got, you've got the flexibility to take more of a, a jump but I suppose even if you're someone with kids and whatever then you you have that choice too but my choice is to just kind of like I don't know be really creative in my time that I have and pay I don't know earn enough money to do the things I need to take care of you know but um again everyone's different mm, yeah no absolutely you know what I mean I mean it's uh like, like you're saying it's like you know if you if you do if you do something like music which is like inherently creative like like the squaring of the circle of like art, artistry quote-unquote and career is always difficult right and it is requires trade-offs and you know everyone's different in the degree to which they're willing to i guess compromise you know and for some people it's a really easy decision because they just like the process whatever it is i mean some people genuinely just like making a tune whatever it is just enjoy the pro- that, that process and you know, that's great. But like, you know, there are 
you know, there are many as many opinions as there are people, or many feelings as there are people about that kind of that kind of thing. And you know what you've, you know, as you've just said, like it's it can can be. You know, you take a lot out of it for some people if you, you know, make it too much about that kind of necessity to pay the bills at the end of the month. If that's tied into your creativity, then it makes it very difficult. Well, that's it. And I think, especially for me, you know, when a lot of this stuff was happening, it's like I had, you know, I had like a, a baby in the time of one of them. And then I had a very young child and a baby. And you're like, I'm sitting with some random dude in my studio who's smoking when I've asked him not to smoke. And he's not happy with this snare. And I'm looking at my watch thinking, but I could be at home with my kids. Do you know what I mean? But instead I'm entertaining some rude shitbag, <laughs> you know, for, 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 for why? For maybe getting some points on his record. And you know, do you know what I mean? It just got to that point where I was just like, nah, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of done with this, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, and then in the back of my head, I'm like, I could have just made four of my own tunes and released them. And then that's just in the pool of my royalties that I get every month. Do you see what I mean? So it's it's tricky. I mean, I sound like a real old man now, don't I? (laughs) Some guy smoking in my studio, keeping me from my children. (laughs) How dare you leave? You must leave. But um, I have got a whole new uh journey that i'm um embarking on which is trying to do make trailer music for films so that's that's the new thing but but i genuinely love doing that and it's like i've got all the connections there and i'm just ticking along making them and if anything happens it happens you know what i mean like i'm not um but i love it i've always been such a huge fan of um like epic filmic you know film scores and orchestral stuff so that's just part of my natural um, progression, I suppose. So I'm doing that as well as still doing dubstep, which sounds mad, but um, but that's the next the next journey. No, I think it's yeah. I mean, it's well, I've I've always found uh, having a bit of variety to be really motivating. Anyway, being able to like jump between things actually is I found quite healthy to be honest. So yeah, sounds great. Well, listen, man, this has been awesome. Like last question. Um, you mentioned earlier that you're metal guy. What are your favourite metal albums? Oh, my favourite metal albums. Um, I think one would definitely have to be Demanufacture by Fear Factory. Uh, Chaos AD by Sepultura. Um, um, hang on a minute. This is really bad. I'm forgetting the name of it now. Oh man, how can I forget the name of this album? The Pantera album that's got Walk on it, but I've totally forgotten what it's called now. Uh, Vulgar Display of Power. Yeah, Vulgar Display of Power. Yeah, I think that they're they're probably the three ones that were really um, and a Corn album, probably the first Corn album. I think those three things like really just kind of because they were all just so different at the time and very individual, and I just thought that that's kind of the way forward is to kind of come with your own sound, if you see what I mean. So I think that's what helped me doing what we did. It just made me think, well, yeah, I'm better off trying to come up with my own thing than do what someone else is already doing. So, Yeah, yeah. 100%. 100%. Cool, man. Well, listen, yeah. Thank you so much. It's been great. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. Okay, that was Distance. 
DJ Distance, aka Greg Sanders. What a fun conversation. That was a proper memory lane trip for me, as you can probably tell. And you could also probably tell that I enjoyed those memories quite a lot. Being involved with the early dubstep scene was just an amazing thing. It was a blessing to be a part of it. And I look back on that period with such fondness, you know, and I cherish the memories, genuinely cherish those memories. It was just amazing, an amazing thing to be a part of, an amazing thing to see it blow up in the way that it did. Obviously, it didn't quite pan out in the way that we hoped, but just the journey and then the explosion was just, um, you know, I will never forget it. Genuinely amazing. It defined my life in many ways, my musical life anyway. So that was great. That was great. Okay, as I mentioned at the top, Hot Flush Recordings is turning 20. Look out for the announcement later this week. Tour dates, releases, loads of different stuff. It's going to be a fun year, trust me. So if you can, then support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There's two tiers there. They're both pretty reasonably priced. If you don't want to do a subscription, you can buy a t-shirt at hotflush.bandcamp.com slash merch. Those tees are pretty cool. Follow the Spotify playlist. Link in the show notes. Leave us a review or a rating. If you're not going to support us financially, that's totally fine. But yeah, do that rating thing if you're not going to support us directly, which I mean, it's totally fine. I mean, I'm not going to judge you. If you can't afford it, then that's cool. If you don't want to, that's also cool. And join us on the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. And I will see you same time, same place back here for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.